You're listening to a recent Abbey Theatre talk. You can get more information on future talks in the series by visiting abbeytheatre.ie. Good evening, <coughs> excuse me. Good evening, everybody. Well, um, I'm really pleased and really honoured to be talking this evening to one of Ireland's most renowned writers and um, the internationally acclaimed playwright Frank McGuinness. And um, Frank McGuinness um, has written so many plays, <laughs> but um, the one I'm going back to is. 1982 Factory Girls, probably your first, Frank. Um, a dynamic play, a play um, with um, great characters, great, great, um, wonderfully written play. And um, in 1984, then Frank, I suppose um, the the one I'm thinking of then is Borderlands, and then 1985, the iconic play Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Somme. And it was in that year that um, the highly successful Bag Lady played here at the Abbey Theatre. And this year, um, Frank, um, you, Frank, whose plays are you know continuously in performance on the international stage on Broadway in London, and this year in London, I think it was in January yes. that um, um, Greta Garbo came to Donegal, um, opened. And um, reviewers said of that most insightful play, most um, dynamic, dramatically. And this is the case with um, all of Frank's plays. Um, observe, um, Someone will watch over me. Carth Carthaginians um, and Bird Sanctuary, and there came a gypsy riding. There are so many of them. Um, one of the things that Frank has um, said is that. Um, repetition is something that's anathema to him and we can see that by the variety and uh, of the issues and the themes within his plays um, for me though what I think really unites and is the uniting characteristic of Frank's plays is um, the acuity of the wit and the energy of the joy and that deep and profound understanding of what it is to be human that only the very best of playwrights can access in the way um, that Frank does. Um, not only um, has, has, he, um, has he composed or written these plays, but also he has written versions um, of um, the writers like Ibsen, like John Gabriel Borkman that's on now, um, Chekhov, Lorca, and some of the great plays of the Greek classical theater. Um, Electra, um, Hecuba, and Oedipus are all, um, Frank has, has, has written versions of them all. Um, he's not only um, an amazing artist, a poet, a dramatist, but also an inspiring teacher. And um, he has taught on the Renaissance, he's taught on linguistics, and he's taught on uh, drama and creative writing. Frank, as, as Lisa said, is professor of English in University College Dublin. And it's my delight now to stop doing all the talking. <laughs> keep <laughs> going, my, keep going. It's going to go downhill from there, actually. <laughs> that was my 10 minutes. <laughs> but to talk to Frank. Um, Frank. I'm just going to start at the very beginning. Sure. And uh, you were born in Bonkrana. That's right, yeah. And um, what I want to ask you is, being born in Bonkrana, did that have um, 
an effect on how you write or, or, or what it is that you write? I think unquestionably it did, actually, because I was aware from um, almost the first stages of being aware of division, of difference, of conflict at some level. Um, and I was aware that I was growing up in a strange place, in a strange community. The great division was, of course, the border. And the fact that we knew that our capital city, our main city, Derry, um, was um, separated from us. Mm -hmm. Even though geographically, as I took up when I was in my teens when I discovered this, geographically Derry is, part of Derry isn't any shown, which is where Bunkrana is. Yeah. Um, but we were, you know, we were very, very conscious of the political divide up there. Um, and as well as that too, I, I sort of knew enough that I, I came from a different type of economy to um, that, particularly of, uh, different to that of the rest of the Southern Ireland anyway, yeah. and that the vast majority of the workforce were women. Um, they were women, and uh, they worked in the shirt factories. Yeah. So um, I think I had the makings of, um, you know, I was going to turn out um, not right, as um, they say, you know, my mother yeah. said to me, you're not right, you know, and um, <laughs> she was right in that, actually. But uh, that was, I think, stirring all the time from the day and hour I was born. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm glad it was, you know, very glad. Yeah. I've been very lucky in the um, disadvantages that I've had. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. And um, so, I mean, your first play then did concern the shirt factory. And uh, um, so was that a theme that came to you kind of readily or was it something, you know, did you empathise with the women who were working in those conditions? I think it was a theme that I was inevitably going to write about really looking back on it. Of yeah. course, at the time, you don't know. The inevitable yeah. was never obvious at the time you're doing it. Um, uh, I had an enormous respect for my mothers and my aunts and my grandmothers and their neighbours, all the women that worked there, their sense of craft yeah. and for their ability to um, produce work of high order mm -hmm. um, and to the pride that they had in their craft. Um, so I, you know, I look on, on my working class culture as a, a rather complex and um, at times quite difficult um, entity that I found nothing uniform or simplistic about um, what working class people do or working people do. Um, that's my mother and my aunts did various things in the shirt factory and that they were, you know, they were experts at different stages of the making of the shirt. Mm -hmm. And they um, guarded that expertise quite um, jealously. My mother was an examiner, right. which meant that she cast a very experienced eye over every aspect of the shirt and I really had to know everything about the making of it. And um, that takes skill, that takes time, and at some degree it takes patience, yeah. but it also takes speed. If you're gonna earn anything, it does. Yeah. And there was this um, very, very uh, well-trained woman who trained other people um, in the craft of, of, uh, of textiles, in the craft of, of, of the shirt making. Um, and in her 50s, she was let go. Um, you know, let go after many, many years service, and um, they, they, they gave her no redundancy money. Oh. So um, I'm well aware of, uh, you know, what bastards the bosses are. <laughs> and um, I think that the fact that it was written in homage, but it was also written in rage yeah. at um, that way these people, were, these women were treated. Yeah. Um, the men were treated a little better, not much better, the, the men who were working there. Um, but... Uh, 
I think it fueled me with a passion to um, to tell the world um, something important mm -hmm. is happening um, when you let um, a culture die, when you let a culture die, and how imperative it is for those who belong to that culture to stand up and fight right. and not to take things lying down. Yeah, um. I mean, that seems to be a theme that you do come back to in, in many of your plays, this idea of courage and having the courage to speak out against the many. Um, I'm just thinking of um, Observe the Sons of mm. Ulster. And, um, you know, also in that play, you seem to bring together craft and the artist as well. It, it, you know, it, do you see craft as fundamental to what you do as an artist? Well, I remember once having a discussion with my friend Marianne Faithful about um, the whole nature of heroism. She was yeah. chatting about her father. Um, a Glenn who had interrogated um, the Nazis in the Nuremberg war crimes and she was chatting about how obsessed he was with this event and Marianne to some extent is obsessed with it yeah. and um, <clears throat> we, we agreed, on, well, we don't agree on many things but we agreed that we might despise heroism but we have um, an adoration and a reverence for courage yeah. because heroism means you're going to win yeah. but courage means you're probably going to lose and um, in that respect, you learn more about yourself from um, displaying courage. Um, the, I've no real interest in the victors of this world. I've no real interest in, you know, the mighty and the powerful. They're boring. Um, their power is boring. But I'm terribly interested in those who resist and those who stand up um, for justice and who fight for it mm -hmm. and who are not afraid to say that's wrong and I am going out of my way to, to um, I'm going to put my neck on the line and say it. That I love, and that I love it because it's completely unpredictable mm -hmm. when it's going to happen and where it's going to happen. The powerful are boring because you know what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, I feel that uh, in a play like Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Psalm, um, which was the, apparently the great defeat mm -hmm. um, of uh, the Ulster loyalist community, the unionist community, I found in it um, an enormous sympathy um, for um, the deceived. Yeah. And I felt that it was my um, duty as a writer and as an Irishman who passionately believes in the peaceful, negotiated re reunion of our country, um, I could learn an awful lot about um, the lost languages of the many tribes on this island. Um, and I couldn't learn from the triumphalism of loyalism. I couldn't learn from the, the aggression of it. But I could learn from the sorrow and from the, um, the divide within it. I could learn a lot from that. And I could tune into that. Um, and so I found the courage of those men um, overwhelming almost. And I had to. A report on that and, and recall that and create that on the stage. I'm not interested in heroism, as I say. I'm not interested in the powerful, mm -hmm. but uh, I love those who do not despair. I love that. Yeah. I love the fight against despair. I understand despair, but you know, mm -hmm. rage, rage, yeah. always yeah. rage. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. lost without rage. Um, it, well, it's. Um you know, it's like when, you know, you're writing Dolly West's Kitchen and, and um, Dolly is talking about having seen the, the mosaics in Ravenna. Ravenna yeah. And she says the beauty about it is that they are walking. 
Mm. Is that sort of the same thing as the humanity or the... You know, well, I I think the root of that play was was grief. Yeah. Um, I had always been determined to write a companion piece for um, Sons of Ulster, and I knew that it would be the Second World War I would be dealing with, mm -hmm. and I knew that if I was dealing with the world of men in Sons of Ulster, I would deal with the world of women in um, Dolly West Kitchen. And um, while I was plotting it, while I was writing it, um, I my mother died. And the play turned into not just an elegy for, for Europe um, and for Ireland and its neutrality, um, but for my mother. And I, while I was writing it, I went to Ravenna mm -hmm. and um, I saw these um, mosaics, which to me are one of the great days of my life to see them, um, because I knew that I wanted to tell my mother about it, but she was dead. I wanted to tell her about these things. And we'd never talked about my fascination with Renaissance art or, you know, Renaissance yeah. theatre. I'm in that at all. Um, but I knew that there was, that was part of the performance, you know, yeah. part of the act. The badness yeah. was, you know, um, I'm not going to talk to you about that. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> she, she would have said that. Yeah. She would have yeah. said that. And then yeah. I, I felt right, well, I'll do it in a play for you. I'll do it in a play. So yeah. when Dolly is talking to her mother about um, the glory of, of what happens in these mosaics. Um, she's talking to her mother who's sitting there mm -hmm. and um, she knows herself that Rima, the mother, doesn't have much long for the world. And what she wishes for is that Rima will continue walking, which is to continue living. And she can tell her this, and that's the code for, I don't want you to die. Yeah. I want you to go on living. And that turns into, um, Dolly's passionate cry to Alec and to the Americans, I want you to win. Yeah. I want you to win the war. Yeah. And I'm frightened you're going to lose it. And Alec ends it by saying, after a whole just argument over the air, he ends it by just looking and saying, God save Ireland. And that was my mother to me, saying that to her, you know, yeah. God save Ireland. Yeah. But um, it, it, it is this... Um, tenderness of looking and this tenderness of of art itself mm. that makes our existence um, bearable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Rima, the mother, is the one who illuminated art for Dolly, absolutely told her why yeah. art was impossible. Yeah. The root of Dolly's art is her mother. There's no question of that. Yeah, that's lovely. And, and uh, also what you say about um, tenderness, because... Um, that is something that comes into quite a lot of your plays as well. Like um, in Observe the Sons of Ulster, when the men are combing each other's hair. Uh, no, no, it's a change of sashes. Comb each other's hair and someone will watch over me. That, oh, then someone yeah, 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 uh, yeah. It's in someone no. will watch over me where the combing is there. Yeah. And he's saying, um, this is what the guys in Sparta Spartan did stood, yeah. Yeah, before yeah. they went into battle. <laughs> and there's a beautiful tenderness about that. It's in Observe the Sons of Ulster where um, they talk about having soft skin again, yeah, which, is, yeah. Yeah, which is lovely, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is uh, beautifully uh, uh, sensitively yeah, written. Pepper knows how to cause <laughs> consternation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're not quite used, these guys, these Ulster guys, to another man talking about his skin, you know, <laughs> <laughs> <and> horribly soft. <laughs> we all like mm. soft skin. <laughs> Yeah, two Belfast <laughs> shipyard workers. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but, um, yeah, so um, where do you see yourself within the continuum of Irish writers? Do you see yourself as having a precursor within um, the pantheon of Irish writers? Oh, I do very definitely, actually. I mean, I have enormous, I teach a lot of Irish theatre yeah. and I have enormous respect for it, but I have no question as to who is the man um, in terms of who I love <clears throat> and who has guided me is Oscar Wilde. I very much see myself in his um, in his arena, and um, I love what he achieves through his experiments with language, and through his daring, and through his well, wicked humour, and through his glorious um, refusals to be categorised in any level. I love the diversity of his imagination. I love the playfulness of it. I love the sorrow that can burst through at times that shows. He was a man um, of deeply wounded, mm -hmm. um, but I think that, um, you know, above all, I, I, I like the way he takes the theme of love both extremely seriously and extremely um, frivolously, and he comes up with the play to end all plays, which is the importance of being earnest, um, and also that um, he is a guide for me um, at the darkest times of Torn to Wild. And he seems to have a strange um, bearing on my life. Um, the first time I read The Importance of Being Earnest was the day of Bloody Sunday. Um, and uh, that's a very strange connection between the two. Uh, I met Philip, my partner, when I directed um, production of Importance of Being Earnest in Coleraine. And my brother Shane was traveling home on the tube in London when two girls got into the carriage carrying um, a program mm -hmm. for the Maggie Smith production, Maggie Smith played Lady Bracknell production, he got talking to them, they were Irish girls, and he ended up marrying one of them. So I think you could say that Oscar Wilde and myself have, you know, we have form, you know. <laughs> we have definite form. <laughs> well, you know, I totally agree with you. I really do think that in your place there's that same joy that invigorates Wilde's plays. And well, he's uh, the great writer, I think. He's the really great Irish playwright, I have to say that. Um, mm -hmm. I think he, he just, well, he, he just shines for me as the, the role model, if you, if you need role models. Mm -hmm. No question of that. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I see that thoroughly. And um, what about, you said that you directed The Importance of Being Earnest. Mm. So is directing one of your In many... In younger and happier times. <laughs> <laughs> is directing one of your many hidden talents? I have directed a fair few things, and it's, I'm very glad I have, because I now know what a very hard job it is. Uh, it's a okay. terribly difficult job. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I think we should all, you know, do our jobs. Yeah. We should all be able to do them. But I have no illusions about what I can't do, you know, and I can't really. I, I suppose if I did nothing else but direct, I could do it. But I couldn't write and direct, and I couldn't teach and direct. Yeah. So there it is. It also brings home to you the immense importance of every job in the theatre. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm back here after I've been away for a while. And I, mean, I know that what's made this such a wonderful experience has been... Um, working with people like Stephen and Anne, my beloved Tara, Rachel, um, uh, sorry, Roisin and Sophie up in the rehearsal room. They, you know, they're the, the stage management crew and the crew here are brilliant at what they do. Yeah. They are absolutely brilliant what they do. Um, you know, Val and Owen, Kevin, everybody like that, actually, they know what they're about. And when you have that kind of deep commitment, mm -hmm. deep, deep commitment and support, 
to your play. You value it above anything else. You absolutely value it. And the, you know, this has been a great experience to come back and to be reminded that's what the Abbey does. Yeah. That's what it does. I mean, it minds people. It takes care of people. And it's in the great tradition of men like Bill Hay or women like Fanula Eustace. Of my, I was a young fella, Elish uh, McBride, Donegal woman. These people in the, the crew have minded me. They've mm. always minded me. I'm deeply grateful to it. I'm grateful that they can do their job. And if I could do my job as well as they can, I'm doing okay. So, so you think then a play can actually change depending on who the director is, who the oh, actors unquestionably. are? Unquestionably, yeah, yeah. So, well, you have to, because yeah. they have created responsibility for their own role. Yeah. And I have created responsibility for my play. But I also have a responsibility to acknowledge their creativity. Yeah. And I have a responsibility to listen to it. And I have a responsibility not to listen to it. Mm -hmm. I have a responsibility for making decisions. That's mm -hmm. part of the whole process. But you must, you must, you must be held accountable by how you treat other people. And I believe in treating other people fairly and with decency and, <clears throat> you know, um, with respect. Yeah. I expect that, and I feel like other people should as well. Um, and it's such a vulnerable time um, when a play is going on, especially in rehearsal and previews. You're raw red. You're really raw red. This is your child being born. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's a metaphor, of course, but it's not that far from the truth, <laughs> you know? And, you know, as you get older, the births get harder, you know? I mean, You're um, telling me. Yeah, please. <laughs> But you never complain, thank <laughs> you to God. No, <laughs> Your child's here today, we'll check it. But, um, but you know what I mean, it, it, it is a, it's enormously tough time to, to go out there and to do so it. And you really do need to have people who know what they're about near you. So how much input would you have then into rehearsal? Like, would you be a kind of hands-on playwright? Would you suggest things to actors or to directors or... You know, would you leave well, them? I feel, I hope I yeah. live a space where they can talk to me. Mm. You know, I, I'm not a, I try not to be a tyrant. I'm not a tyrant, I don't think, or a dictator. And mm. if they need maybe some explaining to be done, I'll be there for them. Or, or if they can explain something to me, I'll listen to them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, you know, I am not a kind of, I'm not a Eugene O'Neill who has to be, you know, escorted from the Bolden um, <laughs> when the rehearsals are on or even before they're on because, you know, somebody has the wrong shade of eyes. Yeah. That's not my thing, you know. Um, yeah. Or, you know, that, you know, they're, they're saying the word hello in the wrong way, you know. Um, that wouldn't be my kind of panic. Um, yeah. But I, um, I, I would hope I'm fair and I would hope I'm friendly with people. And I try to be that, actually, and I try to mind them, yeah. you know, because I know it's tough for everybody. It's yeah. tough for everybody getting a play on. Well, you've had um, Greta Garbo came to Donegal, as opened in London earlier this mm. year. Mm. Do you think we'll get to see it in Dublin or no. on the Dublin stage? No. Oh, you know. <laughs> no? Mm. No, oh, I don't think so. Well, it's up to her, really. It's up to Greta. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. How yeah. did you find writing about somebody like Greta Garbo, like somebody who, you know, made such a big thing about wanting to be alone? Or wanting to be uh, left alone. I want to be left alone. To be left alone, okay. She wants accuracy, yeah. She's great accuracy. Um, did, 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 like, was she a kind of metaphor for other types of isolation, or mm. how did you treat her? Did you treat her as a real person or as somebody who took on a life through you? Mm. Or, or well, I'd always wanted to write a play about um, Donegal, especially before the Troubles erupted. 
<clears throat> and I wanted to um, write about it in a way that nobody else would write about it. I didn't want to write about, you know, stirrings of, you know, Catholic feeling and, and resentment and, you know, nasty Protestants and the rest. I didn't want that crap, you know. Yeah. Um, I wanted to do something strange with it because it was a very strange period. And I was going through puberty at the time. Mm. And when you're going through puberty, you have a passionate belief in God, right? Mm. I had a passionate belief in the gods, you know. I, yeah. I really wanted to be um, Athena. Um, or, you know, I didn't want to be a male god. I, I wanted to be you. Athena. Well, I am Noreen, but we're keeping it quiet, you know. Um, and I, I, you know, I wanted to, I, I yeah. did a lot of work with the Greeks, you know, and, yeah. and, and learned about their way of writing about politics and the rest of it. Um, I believe Garbo has been beside me for many years without me knowing because she is so private. Yeah. Uh, but when I decided to write about this crucial period in our history, the 1960s, and the preparation for war that was happening, um, I had no knowledge that the play of Helen that I'd been working on was in fact the preparation for the play, yeah. because Helen was both God and woman, yeah. and Helen caused consternation. But even more important, the woman, uh, because she was a woman, she caused consternation to herself. And in the play, I wanted Garbo to arrive as a goddess. She mm -hmm. is a goddess, but she's also a woman. And she brings havoc into the lives of everybody that she touches. Mm -hmm. But she also causes havoc to herself because she falls in love. Mm -hmm. And the only way Garbo can deal with love is to leave it. She must leave it. However, because this is true love, she can work a miracle. Okay. And she works a miracle at the end, which saves the girl, the child. She saves the child. Mm -hmm. And the child leaves Donegal to go and become a doctor through the gift of Garbo, through the miracle of Garbo. And I believed that my county has survived through miraculous healing and through miraculous love. And for that, I thank Greta Garbo very, very much. It's not really well known that she actually is the main agent of peace in the north of Ireland. Um, but we know it, because I've just told you, and people who saw the play know it. But uh, you try and tell that to the theatres in this town. I think they might think you were a bit mad. No? <laughs> I think they might want to see it on stage here. It would be lovely, but there's no interest lovely. in it. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, are, you, um, are you writing something at present? or? Yeah, but I really, I, I'm writing something for the Lyric in Belfast for their new theatre. Okay. They've asked me to do it, and I've done it. And, you know, money's a slip between cup and lip, but let's hope that it'll happen um, next year. Next and, year. Um, you know, we, I, as I say, I can't really talk about it, but the very exciting thing is that uh, myself and Patrick Mason will be working together again, oh, another child in that department, and um, I hope it'll <laughs> be, it will be happy. It'll be Patrick. I'm sure it will be, and I'm sure it'll be a beautiful, bouncy child like all your other ones. <laughs> well, I'm hoping it'll be a bit of a bad bollocks. <laughs> like <it>. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think... Um, <laughs> do I have to...? Yeah, yeah please. Yeah? Okay, so, um, so Frank has very generously offered to answer questions now from um, the audience. If any of you have any questions that you'd like to ask... Um, I'm sure he would be delighted to answer. Or else we can just go on chatting. <laughs> yes, did you? Uh, yeah.
Yeah, when he was about um, 20, I think he wrote a letter to him um, about the last play, When We Dead Awaken, um, which he had defended in a paper for University College Dublin for the student magazine there. Um, I, I think why he loved him, why Joyce loved and truly loved Ibsen, I think it's one of the great loves of his life, um, Ibsen and Nora were the two loves of his life. Uh, I think because Joyce believed at the age of 20, Ibsen was the equal of him. Um, <laughs> And do you think Ibsen was the equal of Joyce Frank? <laughs> no. Greta Garbo has just entered the room. <laughs> she said, go with the Scandinavian. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, so this. I don't really see that much of a difference, to tell you the truth, in that I know that the versions feed into the original work. Um, and there, there's some very strange connections that can be made in it. Um, and sometimes the versions call upon um, uh, intimate experiences that, they, uh, that, the, that you know, never happened in the, in the, in the writing. Um, like in, I did a version of Phaedra uh, for the Donmar about five years ago. And that's um, the outpouring of controlled grief in Phaedra Racine's astonishing um, discipline of emotion and the articulation of suffering and passion very deeply fed um, the mother's grief in There Came a Gypsy Riding for her son who committed suicide. Um, because ultimately who she is mourning, the life she is mourning for is her own life. Um, and her own past and her own childhood, um, and this terrible sense that um, in neglecting her own life and neglecting her own childhood, she has at some very deep level neglected her child, and that that child has died as a consequence of that neglect, even though he took his own life by his own hand. And Phaedra certainly helped me to go into that terrible darkness. There's no question of that. Uh, also, um, when I was writing Oedipus, the version of Oedipus, I came to the end of it. And there is this extraordinary scene where Oedipus sees his young children um, and weeps for them and asks for their help. And um, when I was writing on this scene, I could see my own father terribly clearly in front of me. Um, and I had never written about my father, written, never written about his death. He had died. 12 years before I'd, I'd done this. Um, and I knew that I had to stop in that instant. I had to stop and go away and go outside. I knew I was going to finish it because it's very near the end, but I suddenly was crook, bent over with grief for my father. And that had never happened to me in my own writing. The consequence of that is that now um, I think of practically everything I write is as much a lament for my father as it is, or as it was for my mother. And, um, you know, that, that has certainly been the case in, in um, the plays that have come after Oedipus, in Greta Garbo, Kemp Donegal, and in the new play. And I wouldn't have had access to that feeling if the, if the Greek hadn't 
helped me to say what I had to say through the, what they give me. Um, I could never ever do a version of a play unless I was you know, passionately concerned about it and wanted to learn something from it and you know, know more about it. I go on there to know more. I, I want these plays to give me knowledge. Um, and of course, the, the ostensible thing is that they give you more knowledge of your craft and your technique. Um, but uh, they also give you more knowledge about the, um, the deepest experiences of your life because they clearly stemmed from these authors' deepest experiences of their lives. Uh, you can't make the play your own. That's, you know, Ibsen's plays or Ibsen's Sophocles' plays or Sophocles. But you can leave an imprint on them, some imprint on them to say, you know, graffiti, I was there, I was there. And that's all you can do. And somebody else will come along and they'll leave an imprint, you know, I was there, I was there, a different imprint on it, and it'll affect them in a different way. Um, but there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that um, I needed to do as many of these versions as I have done. I, I absolutely need that sustenance, I need that nurturing that I get from these writers. Um, part of me is guilty in that I don't know the language of many of these writers. I've, some, I've studied Old Norse for four years, so the Scandinavian languages I have some inkling of, but I always work with an extremely accurate scholar. I need that exactness, that, uh, that fierce determination to be detailed. And I do that um, because I can relax then and I can bring my playwriting skills and the way they bring their linguistic skills. And maybe the combination of the both will do something unique, will do something that nobody else could do as a combination between the two of us. Um, but I think it's as important in translating plays or in doing version of plays that you have um, expertise in the craft of writing for the theatre. Um, because these people are, they are the craft of writing for the theatre. So you have a responsibility to use your knowledge there to make their plays live for a short period of time. Then they will, your versions will date, somebody else will come along and they will you know, be the bee's knees for a while. That won't happen with your own place if you're very, very lucky. Maybe they'll be revived, maybe they'll be revived. Few and far between are the revivals, as anybody will tell you, even the most successful playwrights. Um, you know, there's a lot of plays that don't see the light of day after they're first done. And um, it's heartbreaking in a way. You look at them years later and think, oh God, the man who wrote that play, I wish it was him again. Uh, but the play may never have been seen since that first outing. And that's just the way life is. You want some, you lose some. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, give a draw with others, you know. Yeah. But it's sort of always the way it was, isn't it? Like when the playwright is alive, like in the 19th century, it would have been the same, that you, you see the play, mm. but the revivals mm. are few and far between. I think it took about nearly 20 years for the Plan of the Stars to be revived here. I'm yeah. not sure, I don't know the, the theatrical yeah. history, but I'm nearly sure it took about 20 years for it to come back here, which is extraordinary. Yeah. Yes, it is. You know, the Abbey, one of the great plays of the Abbey, and it, it takes that long for it to be recognised. Mm -hmm. I may be wrong there, but I'm nearly sure that's no, right, actually. I think actually. you're probably right. Um, and so, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's just... The, the, the blood of the theatre is new writing, absolutely. And it's right that new writing be at the foreground of it. Um, and I, but I do I believe that you know versions, new versions are part of new writing, part of the whole thing. You know, um, that's a very long way of telling you that um, 
I like them both. I like doing both. <laughs> um, but there's no doubt which is the bigger um, challenge, and that is to start from scratch. You mentioned that uh, you wrote about Donegal prior to the troubles. Have you ever been motivated to write uh, of what has happened since the troubles began? In the way, perhaps, you mentioned the Brown Stars, or Casey wrote about Dublin at the time. Uh, well, I, I wrote a play called Carthaginians, which is about Derry and Bloody Sunday. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel that that said what I wanted to say about uh, grieving and about memory. Um, and um, I tend to let the subject pick me rather than me pick the subject. And if something comes along that I want to work on, I will. Um, so many people have written about the North that I feel, I feel humbled by their superior um, insights in various forms. So I let that happen. Um, I let other people do it. Yes. I'm not mentioning her name. She knows who she is, and she's big-headed <laughs> enough. <laughs> you can guess who I'm talking about. Um, uh, uh, the BBC Radio have done um, Sons of Ulster um, uh, years ago. But no, they're, they're not, actually. Not to my knowledge. They're not commercially available, anyway. Um, I kind of am very cautious about letting the plays be done on radio. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not really interested in filming them either. They're theatre, you know. That's what they are, they're theatre. Um, I suppose I've never really recovered from a certain um, radio station, not a million miles from Donnybrook, um, <laughs> doing a play in a mine and their solution to it, it overrunning the slot, which is to cut the last 15 minutes. So when that happens to you at an impressionable age, you know, you remember, you know. <laughs> you you kind of remember, you know. A bit of a savage circumcision there, you know, I mean. So. <laughs> you did write for a film, though. You did adapt um, Brian Friel's oh, that, yeah, but that how, was how, What Brian sort of an experience was that? Well, it was, it was very pleasant, actually. Yeah. I enjoyed working um, on the play. It's a play that I have great time for. Yeah. Um, it actually, uh, Brian was very kind. He let me say, you know, don't let him bother me, which I thought was, um, that's what he said. Mm -hmm. He heard I was doing it, which I thought was, well, that's the imprimatur. Um, he knew I wouldn't murder it. Um, he knew that I would know that he knew more about the play than I did, but I would still kind of have to put a shape in it in terms of a film. I enjoyed working with Pat O'Connor, whom I'd always wanted to work yeah. with. Um, I loved working with Meryl Streep, who was a very, very fine woman. Um, absolutely formidable, wonderful, um, but astonishingly fair and respectful. Um, great fun, great, great fun. Um, you know, there were terrific casts. Sophie Thompson, um, you know, marvellous actress. Um, Breach, of course, Breach Brown. Um, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a very tight thing to get on. Noel being Noel um, Pearson, 
just about got the money and we got it made, we got it done. Um, I stand over it you know, very happily. Um, but it's a world that I would be very wary of getting into. You know, it's, it's yeah. not my world. I did a TV play last year and I want to do another one. Um, but I was very well protected by the producers there. Very, very well protected. I mean, and I couldn't have done it without that kind of um, lion beside me, you know? Yeah, it, that was the one was nominated for the BAFTA. Yes, didn't get it. Yeah. 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 Samantha Morton won <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I made the terrible mistake of every, I mean, every 10 years I go to a bloody award ceremony, five minutes until I say, what am I doing here, you know? It takes 10 years to forget about the last one. Yeah. I, I think the, the BAFTA might be, yeah, well, depending on how long I've got left, 20 years. You did get a, a Tony, didn't you? Who I, needs a BAFTA? Please, I don't like to talk about it, you know? Oh, one is so modest. <laughs> I think what is what is uh, is an Algernon's great thing about you know pretending not to notice that is an indication of of a rather sweet and modest disposition. <laughs> and if you believe that, you'll believe anything. <laughs> well, as we have seen this evening, Frank McGuinness has a sweet and modest disposition, mm. which mm. is quite a wonderful thing for a genius. And thank oh, you very very Jesus. much, Frank, for having spoken to us. Thank you. Thanks, folks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You'll find many more Abbey Theatre talks available to listen back to, along with details of future talks in the series by visiting our website, abbeytheatre.ie.